Brothers and sisters, please open with me again to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 19. Uh, Today our scripture text is verses 11 through 16, Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 through 16. last week that we saw the marriage supper of the Lamb announced with, indeed, great hallelujahs uh, to the Lord. Now we come to verse 11. Let's hear God's word. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Sends this reading in God's word. Let's look again to the Lord in prayer. Lord our God, we thank you for uh, the riches of your word, that in a world of deceit and of lies, that we have a sure and certain word from heaven. Lord, that you are a God who does not lie to us, that indeed every single syllable of Holy Scripture is breathed out by you. And it's profitable to thoroughly furnish us unto every good work. And so we do know today, O Lord, that what we need more than anything is to meet with you and to hear from you. So, Lord, would you do this, even as your word is preached, stir in our own hearts, we pray. Illumine our minds, stir our affections, move our wills. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. When we began our study of the book of Revelation uh, over 13 months ago, Uh, In the very first sermon, I said the following. I wonder if you're allowed to actually quote from your own sermons, but here it goes. I said, what is the central thrust of the book of Revelation? I said, it is not world events or other historical figures. This book isn't meant to satisfy human curiosity or to enable us to figure out how 
specific future events fit into God's timetable. It isn't the book that is meant to simply uh, predict the future, but rather it is all about Jesus Christ. Uh, This book, the book of Revelation, focuses, like the rest of Scripture, on the person of Christ himself. It is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ, I said in that first sermon, that is the very focus of Revelation. And as we have uh, been making our way through this book, now down through chapter 19, I hope that it is Jesus Christ who has been lifted up before your eyes time and again. Well, He has been so far, and He certainly is in this passage today. The passage begins with a command. The command is simply, Behold, look, the Apostle John says. You, reader, look, look. We say, well, look at what? Well, he says, not what, but whom? I want you to look at a person. Behold, he says, a white horse and one sitting on that horse. And that one who is sitting on the horse, it becomes very clear, is none other than the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And what it's describing here are those events that have to do with his second coming. Last week, we considered the Lord Jesus Christ as our bridegroom, our bridegroom who loves his bride, the church, and who will take her to himself in glory, where we are together with our bridegroom going to celebrate that great wedding supper of the Lamb. What a day of rejoicing that is going to be when we finally get to see and behold the great lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, to know Him and feast with Him for all eternity. But this passage tells us that our bridegroom, with whom we will spend all eternity, is also a warrior. And in order to make his bride secure and to prepare for that great wedding day, he must first overcome all of his enemies and ours. That the Lord Jesus is indeed the mighty warrior doing battle and winning the victory for us. And that is exactly how he is pictured here. Here is our bridegroom, brothers and sisters. But see him mounted on a horse, a white horse, white representing victory. A horse, uh, a symbol of power and speed. And here, our bridegroom is appearing. And he is appearing to put down rebellion and to defeat evil, to make his kingdom secure for his bride. That's what he does at his second coming. And that's what's described here. We're going to look at how he does that two weeks from today in verses 17 through 21. But today, we are simply going to behold the warrior himself. We're going to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what verses 11 through 16 are all about. Well, we're going to 
look at our Lord Jesus in His second coming uh, under two different heads uh, today, two different main points. First of all, uh, we're going to see here in Revelation 19 that we are given names for our victorious King. We are given names, namely four names for our victorious King. And then secondly, we are going to see uh, uh, uh a symbolic description of our victorious king. We're going to be given names for our victorious king and then a symbolic description of our victorious king. And together might you and I set our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, we are given names for our victorious name, our victorious king. You know, in the ancient world, uh, names... Uh, were important. They're certainly important today, right? Whenever a baby is born into the world, the first question we ask is, well, what is that child's name? Right? Little Aaron Ely, born recently, we say right away, we announce the birth of Aaron Ely. And for the rest of his life, he's going to have that name. It's going to be attached to him. It's a kind of identity marker. Well, in the ancient world, names were even more important. They... uh, they were known to kind of reveal the character of someone. So one of the ways that God tells us about himself is by telling us his name. You'll remember Moses, for example, at that burning bush in the Old Testament, taking off his sandals because it is holy ground, and the Lord reveals himself. He reveals his name to Moses. I am who I am. And it tells us about God, the all-sufficient one. Well, there are other names that are given for us in uh, the scriptures. And so he reveals himself as, for example, Jehovah Rapha, our provider, or Jehovah Tzedkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. And in particular in the scriptures, uh, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is given uh, many names. He is Emmanuel. God with us. Or that well-known passage in Isaiah 11 and verse 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Each name telling us something about our glorious Lord Uh, Jesus Christ, or even Jesus at his birth, right? His name shall be called Jesus. Jehovah saves. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. There are many, many more names than that that are given to the Lord Jesus Christ, and each of Christ's names should be something that is precious to us. None of them fully tell us everything that there is to know about our Savior, but each name opens up for us some important aspect of his character or work. We sing a song, don't we? Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end. Accept the praise. I bring. Or we sang as the opening hymn today, didn't we? Join all the glorious names 
of wisdom, love, and power that ever mortals knew, that angels ever bore. All are too poor to speak his worth, too poor to set my Savior forth. And then each of the stanzas begin with a name of our Savior, great prophet of my God. The next stanza, thou art my great high priest. The next one, thou art my counselor, my pattern and my guide. That final stanza, my Savior and my Lord, my conqueror and my King. Thy scepter and thy sword, thy reigning grace I sing. Thine is the power, behold I sit in willing bonds beneath thy feet. The names of our Lord Jesus Christ are precious indeed. Well, here in Revelation 19, this rider on the great white horse appears and it reveals for us in the splendid reigning Lord Jesus Christ even four more names for our Savior. We're going to look at each of these four in turn. The first of those four we find in verse 11 when it says, the one sitting on it is called, he's named what? Faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is telling us that as the Lord Jesus Christ appears, and as he comes to make war, that This one is not like the kings of this earth. You know, so often human warfare is caused uh, by awful things, by territorial or imperialistic ambition, or by greed for more resources and the wealth that those resources bring, or by a kind of megalomania and a sort of insatiable desire for power and for fame, and the kind of bloodshed that comes in the path of those kinds of desires we find time and again throughout human history. But you know, the Lord Jesus Christ is not like that at all. Not our warrior king, but rather we're told he judges and makes war in righteousness. That his name is both faithful and true. That he is faithful to his Father's will and to his calling. And that he is truth itself. That he is the true fulfillment of everything that the Scripture said about Him. Here is one who never acts unrighteously. Here is one who is always, uh, who always acts in accord with that which is good and that which is right. Here is one who has secured His kingdom by His own faithful obedience to the Father And through that, he is given an inheritance of nations. And it is this one who will finally come at that final judgment day to set the world right. And isn't that good news? That the one who is going to appear on that final day is none other. Unlike all the kings of this earth, here is one who himself is faithful and true, who is good and right and trustworthy. He reigns as king forever and ever. Well, the second name is given a little bit later when it says, oh, verse 12. And he has a name, this is now the second name, but it says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. The second name that we are given is 
an unknown name to us, but one known only to him. What's going on here? What can we learn from this name if we don't even know what it is? Well, what we can learn is that this truth that even when you and I grasp everything that the Bible tells us about our glorious Savior, that there are still hidden depths to Christ's character which we will never be able to plumb. Theologians refer to it in this way. They say that the finite cannot grasp the infinite. Or to put it a little bit more a homey way, you know, my little pea brain cannot possibly grasp all that there is to the greatness and glory and majesty and wonder of my Savior. Isn't that great? But he's far beyond what any of your minds or my mind can comprehend. You know, I think that's going to be part of the part of the wonder of heaven. You know, some people kind of think, don't they? Well, isn't heaven going to be boring? What are we going to do there? Dear friends, our minds in heaven are going to forever be occupied with learning more about our Savior. And even after 10,000 years in heaven, we are not going to have exhausted everything that there is to know about our exhaustless Savior. That, and, and with every fresh discovery, dear friends, there is going to be fresh praise to our glorious King. He has a name that is as yet unknown to you and to me. There are aspects of his character which we will still plumb the depths of, even to all eternity. That's the second name. The third name uh, that we are given of our Lord Jesus is that, this is in verse 13 now, that he is called, you see that language, he is called, or that the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The Word of God. Of God. Now, could John have possibly written these words down without remembering what he said in the opening words of the gospel that he wrote? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him. Not anything was made that or not uh, was not anything made that was made in him was life, and that life was the light of men. This name, the Word of God, means that the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect self-revelation of God. That he, in the words of Hebrew one, Hebrews one and verse three, that he is uh, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his. Uh, nature that in seeing and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, we know none other than God Himself. He is the eternal Word. Well, that's the third name. The fourth name, then, is found at the very end of our passage, verse 16, where we are told that on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written. Well, what is this name that is written? King of kings and Lord of lords. I want you for a moment to think of some of the greatest and most powerful rulers and leaders in the history of the world. Maybe your mind would run to an Alexander the Great 
or to a Charlemagne, to a Napoleon, to a Hitler with his awful conquest of, of Europe before he was uh, defeated. You could think of the United States even and all of its power and the extraordinary power that uh, our own U.S. government has or other governments of the world. Well, this passage says that whatever names you are thinking of, whatever world leaders, whatever kings or presidents, whatever legislatures, whatever people that you are thinking of that have tremendous influence, this tells us that whoever that individual is, he or she still has a king that is over them. The Lord Jesus is the king of all the other kings. He is the Lord who is over all the other lords. Doesn't that bring you and me just tremendous comfort? But my life is not ultimately in the hand of any government or of any human leader. That my eternal existence is not determined by the whims of a of a man, but rather Jesus Christ has already ascended to that highest place. Ephesians 1.21 tells us, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And there He is, the risen Lord Jesus and He has that name already that is above every other name. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is soon going to be revealed in the sight of all uh, to be just that glorious thing. This tells us on the one hand, dear friends, what the responsibility of the kings of this present world is. And it is to not set themselves against Christ but rather to serve Christ, who is King of kings and uh, Lord of uh, lords. This is exactly what Psalm 2 and uh, verse 10 tells us. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. What should they do? The kings should serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, that is to honor the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all, even the kings of the earth, who take refuge in Him. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the King of all kings. He is the Lord over all lords. And what what a comfort it is to you and to me to know that we have such a King has all of our days in His hand as we just finished singing just a moment ago. So, dear friends, can you take encouragement from these names of Jesus Christ? Four of them that are given to us, each one full of tremendous encouragement. This is our Lord who is now in heaven. This is our Lord who is soon going to be revealed. These Four names, faithful and true. A name that you and I don't even know. Then the Word of God, the King of kings, the Lord 
of Lords. He has given these names. Now, secondly, though, for our sermon, I want us now, secondly, uh, to consider a symbolic description of our victorious king. Those were the names of our victorious king. We now, secondly, consider a symbolic description of our victorious king. For in addition to giving Christ's names, what these verses do with the, with, uh, the sections that we've not looked at so far is they give a kind of um, visual depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now, note that this is a purely symbolic description. The Bible never gives us an actual description of his, of his human body, either on earth or in a glorified state in, in heaven. And so we shouldn't make depictions of Christ's body, either through artwork or even in our own minds. The second commandment forbids making any images of God. But rather, what are, what, what, what's done here is not an actual literal description of Christ's glorified uh, body, but rather a symbolic description that tells us what he is like. It tells us more about who our victorious Christ actually is. Well, what do these symbols tell us about our victorious Christ? Well, point out five things here, uh, five things. And the first of those five is it tells us that he exercises perfect knowledge. Perfect knowledge. Do you see that? That uh, verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Eyes, but eyes that are bright and see everything. You know, you and I have eyes. We have two of them. We can only look out one direction at a time. Contrary to popular belief, none of us have eyes in the back of our head. For many of us, our eyesight increasingly is failing. We can only see those things that are in front of us. I don't know what's happening outside of these walls or in other parts of the United States or in other parts of the world, but not so with our Lord Jesus Christ's eyes. Okay, again, the symbolic description means that there is nothing that is hidden from his sight, that he has knowledge of uh, everything. He has a penetrating kind of insight that is able to discover uh, even the secret intentions of our hearts. Hebrews 4 and verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know, you and I often, and people just in this world, often try to hide things. And sometimes they're very successful. People hide fraudulent financial transactions. An unfaithful spouse tries to hide it from their partner. A, a child tries to hide something that they shouldn't have done and even will tell a lie about it. And do you know something? Sometimes we are very successful at hiding things from one another. We can live with secrets that extend throughout our whole life. But do you know that there is one from whom we can hide nothing at all? That is the Lord Jesus Christ who has eyes that are like flames of fire. I wonder this, would we be so diligent sometimes in trying to hide things 
if every thought of your mind was printed out on a computer screen somewhere for anybody in the world to just go up to and read? You'd say it's useless to try to hide things. If every thought of my mind is going to be up on that screen and anything that I think it's going to be there for other people to read, well, dear friends, the Lord Jesus Christ knows even the thoughts, even the secret intentions of our mind. And that's why when we do sin against him, as we do, we ought to be honest with the Lord and come to him in repentance and faith, full confession. Don't try to hide things from the living God. We cannot, but rather we seek his forgiveness and his mercy. But what good news it is that our Lord Jesus Christ has such a piercing vision because it also means that all of the injustice, all of the wrongdoing of this world doesn't escape his notes. That he will bring things to final account. This is why the scriptures tell us uh, uh, to leave vengeance with the Lord. He gets things right in the end. We don't always get things right, but he will get things right in the end. And we can trust him uh, with that. But it means as well that the Lord's piercing eyes even see the good desires that we have. The desires maybe that nobody else recognizes. The desires to want to please him and to serve him and to do things for him. Those are noticed by our Lord Jesus Christ. He has eyes that are like flames of fire. He is a perfect knowledge of us. But the second thing that we see about him is that he exercises perfect dominion. He exercises perfect dominion. We find this as well in verse uh, 12. It said, on his head are many diadems. Now, in the Greek, there are two different words for a kind of crown. Uh, one word, Stephanus, refers to a kind of laurel wreath of victory that would be placed on a victorious athlete in the games. That's not the word that's being used here. It's used elsewhere in Scripture. But rather, this word, the word that's translated diadem, is a word that signifies ruling authority. It's what a king would wear. It says that he's the one in charge. And here it says that our Lord Jesus has not just one diadem or two, but rather many diadems that crown his head. And it's a symbolic picture of the full authority that our Lord Jesus Christ has. He has too many crowns to count. So our Lord Jesus Christ, when he appears at his coming, he appears as none other than the king who is in full authority. He has, as we mentioned earlier, already been lifted up to the highest place. He is already Lord over all. But the good news is, is that Christ's kingdom is not a usurped kingdom. He doesn't uh, uh, reign... uh, so as to be overthrown someday. There's no danger of that at all. But rather, He rules now and will rule forever. This is why we ought not to be too scared of any human ruler or any human government that sets themselves against the righteous King. 
They cannot take the Lord Jesus' spot. No matter their wicked designs, no matter their wicked intentions, or any other human that works, as it were, by the power of Satan, opposing Jesus Christ and His rule, they will not be able to overcome this King. He has many diadems on His head. Well, the third thing about Him, symbolically, is that He exercises perfect love. Not only He exercises perfect knowledge, perfect dominion, but now thirdly, perfect love. Look with me at verse 13. It tells us there that he is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. So it pictures him in a garment, but in a garment that is red with blood. Now what blood is this? Well, here commentators do differ. I think it's possible for either one of them to be true. Some would say it's the blood of his enemies whom he has come to judge. It's going to speak of his judgment soon, isn't it? Verse 15, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, uh, the Almighty. So that could be what it is. But the second choice, and the one that, that I think is more likely, is that what it's referring to is his own blood that is shed on Calvary's cross for our uh, redemption. Why do I think this? Well, Revelation 5 and verse 6 already portrays the Lord Jesus as the victorious King in heaven. And how does it portray the Lord Jesus in heaven? I saw a lamb, Revelation 5, 6. I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. That yes, Christ is victorious. But He is victorious, still bearing the wounds of His sacrifice for us. We sing of it in these words, don't we? Rich wounds yet visible above. In beauty glorified. The beautiful wounds of Jesus that were given for us. And so... What I think this is saying is that even as Christ appears in all of His resplendent glory as the returning King, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, even then we still see Him as the One who has loved us and given Himself for us. The King of all kings is the One who died on Calvary's cross and He died there for me. He is still the One who had the nails that were pierced through his hands and the spear that came through his side. He is still the one who cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is this glorious King who is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. He's the one who underwent the judgment that I deserve so that I might be saved. It reminds us that in a passage like this one here, dear friends, a passage that is speaking of Christ's return in glory to judge the wicked, it reminds us that you and I, each one of us, are among those wicked who will be judged. Unless one thing, that is, that that judgment for us was taken upon 
the Lamb of God Himself. It's not that Christ comes in judgment against those who are really bad, and I've been a pretty good person, so it's not going to be me. No, it is that when Christ comes in judgment, He comes against all who have broken His holy law, which includes me. Dear friends, there is a single place of safety. That is in the redeeming love of this one who is the judge. It is in the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. And that's why why we preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. This is why we tell them, uh, repent. This is why we tell them that you must be born again. This is why we say that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because the only place of refuge is in the one whose garment is dipped in blood. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. What a striking image this is as well, because it means that the Lord Jesus, who is coming in judgment against the penitent, is coming as the crucified Savior. And as it were, those who have spurned His redemption... (laughs) will see Him and meet Him as the judge, and yet as the judge who has these rich wounds that were, shed, that, that were, that were made for sinners. As it were, the, the wicked will, will look upon the very one whose redemption they have spurned, who, who, whom they have rejected, who have heard the Gospel and said, no, I don't believe it. I don't want anything of that redemption. It is this very one, this Lamb that they will look upon and, and who they will be judged by. On that final day, it is this one who has these robes that are dipped in blood. The blood that he shed on Calvary. So we see the Lord Jesus, don't we, in his perfect knowledge, in his perfect dominion, in his perfect love. Fourth thing that we see is that we see that the Lord Jesus here exercises perfect leadership perfect leadership. We read in uh, verse 14 about the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following the Lord Jesus on white horses. Well, who are these uh, armies of heaven? I think this could be the angels. But I think it is also the redeemed saints, the glorified church. It describes them here as uh, in linen, white and pure. Was that not just how the bride was described in chapter 19 and verse 8? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And so here we see the bride of Jesus Christ with the Lord in His glorious appearing. We read elsewhere in the Scriptures that when the Lord Jesus Christ appears, that the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then we who are still alive are going to go and meet the Lord in the air. And the picture, dear friends, is that of uh, the resurrected church of Jesus Christ meeting with her Lord. And so, as it were, with the Lord at the head of this great army, we are with Him. What a glorious thought this is. 
to be part of the church of Jesus Christ is to share in the Lord's victory on this final day, to be part of the Lord's fair army on this day. He with the blood-stained robe, us with pure linen, white, pure, because it is the gift of His righteousness uh, to us. The Lord Jesus is the one who exercises perfect leadership over His church. But now, fifth and finally, I want us to see that He exercises perfect judgment. Perfect judgment. Verse 15. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Uh, the Almighty. The Lord Jesus is indeed the one who is gentle and meek and has given himself for us, but he is also the judge of all the earth. The Father has appointed judgment to the Son, he says, and here we read of the Son coming to judge. He judges, it says, uh, not with any other uh, physical sword, but it's with his own word, a sharp sword coming from his own mouth. That is, it is with his own word even that he smites the nation. The same word, or or it's by a word, that he created all things and they were brought into being. And here it is from the judgment of his mouth that he smites the nations. And the picture is of the enemy immediately being slain. We're going to see more of it uh, next week and then even into future weeks. But there is no long, uh, protracted battle. The Lord Jesus is more powerful. He comes, He appears, and He conquers. The result is never in question at all. And He rules with a kind of absolute authority. He can't be resisted. That's the idea of a a rod of iron. Uh, that, That there is no opposition that ultimately can be brought against them, that evil finally will be crushed and the Lord, dear friends, is coming in wrath against the wicked powers of the earth that have rebelled against God. He, the picture is of treading the winepress of the fury of His wrath, stomping them uh, under a foot. The message, dear friends, is one of uh, judgment. Hell is real. The wrath of the Lamb is a real thing. He comes in judgment against all of those who in their sin have not turned in faith and repentance uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His resplendent glory and majesty. Have you heard John's command to us today? What did he tell us? Behold. Behold. Here He is. Do you see Him? Are you expecting Him? Do you, do you realize that surely He will come? Do you, do you know that even now He is reigning and ruling in heaven? Soon that, that rule is going to be revealed in the sight of all nations. Then the end is going to come. Oh, dear friends, this is true. The, I can't remember the number exactly. I think it's something like one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament speak to us about the second coming of our Lord. It may even be more than that. All the time. 
the Bible says. He's coming. He's coming again. Lift your eyes. See the Lord Jesus. Remember that He rules. And I just wonder for you today, what, what are you struggling with? What indwelling sin? You having trouble getting any kind of mastery over? What, what frustrations do you have with the fallenness and sinfulness of, of other people? In what way is Satan attacking you? And you feel that his attack is relentless and it is not giving in. In what ways do you feel oppressed? Do you feel, or what ways are you struggling? Well, the Bible says, behold the Lamb of God. Look at Him in His glory. He's a rider on the, the white horse. Look to Him and be encouraged. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you are in Jesus Christ, you will be part of that fair army on that day that attends your Lord. All will be well. All will be well. It is well now with your soul because He reigns. It will be well as He returns if you keep your eyes focused on Him. You see, we need to behold Him, Jesus. We need Jesus. That's what Revelation is all about. It's about Christ. You need to have your eyes on Christ. Not just the events of the world around you. Not just the everything that everybody else is doing, not just your own inward thoughts, not only your inward fears and anxieties. What you need is Christ. Turn your eyes to Him. More of Him. His name's His character. Look upon Jesus. Be encouraged by that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much that in the book of Revelation we are given such glorious pictures of our exalted King, riding on a white horse, accomplishing salvation and judgment. Lord, we do pray that we would behold this rider on this white horse. Lord, give us the eyes of faith. Grant that we would look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And not lose sight of him amidst all the daily, the daily grind, the daily struggles, the daily temptations, and struggles. Lord, might we come to know more of Jesus. Have our faith even more firmly assured that he indeed is coming. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. We're going to sing together a hymn.